Hello, you're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim. What a beautiful, beautiful day. It is Tuesday, February 26, 2019. If you're listening on a different date, then the show is either being rebroadcast or was pre-recorded. I was just listening to the weather report, and they said chance of snow. Well, right now it doesn't look like it, but it sure is cold. Walking my little dogs this morning, I had to wrap them up in a couple of different sweaters and make sure I had my double parked and hat on. But man, from my view here at the studio window, it is just gorgeous out. Beautiful, beautiful Pacific Northwest Seattle weather. I am your host, Greg McKim, and on Home Talk, we talk about just about anything that has to do with buying or selling or financing or owning a home, everything from fixing your windows to reverse mortgages. I've been in the real estate business in some fashion since the 1970s, everything from swinging a hammer to owning a mortgage company. I'm currently a licensed real estate broker with Rockwell Realty. I am also a licensed loan originator, license number 106202, with Loanzilla, license number 67412. You might wonder why I have to read those license numbers out. It's the law when it comes to the mortgage industry. Real estate doesn't require that. So on the show, we talk, as I mentioned, about just about anything I can think of that has to do with home owning, buying, selling. But, of course, I'm not an expert in all those fields, so I quite often bring guests on. Today I was hoping to have a guest who wasn't able to make it, who has been a contractor in both commercial and home uh, building for the last 40 years. But his schedule prohibited that, so we're targeting next Tuesday the 5th for Jeff to be on. So today what we're going to do, we're going to talk about my tips for buying and selling a home. Keep in mind that I have some experience in this industry. I've been in the mortgage business since 91, and I've been a real estate broker since 2009. Um, Probably mostly talk about the buying side. It's the most complex and time-consuming, and I might not have time into getting into tips about selling a home, but perhaps we will. So let's start off with some terminology. This is something that consumers, I find, quite often get confused about. For instance, what's a real estate broker versus a real estate agent? Really, they're one and the same. Up until 2010 in Washington State, real estate brokers were called agents. For some reason, the state of Washington decided to change that. Don't know why. Apparently, that's what they're called in some states, but in some states, they're still called agents. So now, the agent, me, is supposed to call themselves a broker. We're not we're not supposed to call ourselves agent, although we do it quite often. It used to be that the broker was the firm we worked for. Now that is no longer the case. That broker is now the firm. So I am a real estate broker working for a firm by the name of Rockwell Realty. And let's talk about the distinctions then of who works for who. A buyer's broker represents the buyer. And there is some confusion about this because, unfortunately, in the multiple listing service forms, we're called the selling broker. And if you think about it, wouldn't that mean that we're representing the seller? Well, no. The listing broker represents the seller. So, again, buyer's broker represents the buyer, but in the contracts and the forms that the MLS provides us, 
were called the selling broker because we sold the home. We didn't list it, but we found a buyer to buy it, so we sold the home. Who is the listing broker? The listing broker represents the seller and works for the selling firm. Excuse me, I made a, I made a mistake. The listing broker works for the listing firm. The selling broker or buyer's broker works for the selling firm. Now, technically, if you list a property for sale, you don't list it with a broker. You list it with a firm, say Rockwell. And then Rockwell appoints a broker at that firm, Greg, to be your representative. But you really listed it with the firm, not the broker. The broker doesn't have a legal right to list your property. They have to go through a licensed firm. How about Realtor? What is a Realtor? A Realtor is a designation that a person as a real estate broker obtains by paying annual dues to the National Association of Realtors, which is a fine firm. They provide lots of training. I think they have about a million members. They provide lobbying on behalf of the real estate industry. And some people feel very strongly that every real estate broker should be a member of the, of the Realtors. Unfortunately, not everybody is because of the rules the National Association of Realtors has. For instance, they require a certain percentage. I think it's 100% of a firm's brokers to be members. And so if you work for a firm that is a, that, that has, yeah, I'm sure that's the way it is. You, if you work for a firm that requires every broker to be a member, then you can be a realtor. But if you work for a firm that doesn't require everyone to be one, then you can't be one. That's one of their funky rules. And because of that, I'm not one because not everybody at Rockwell wants to be one. And the owner of Rockwell, Jim, who I've known for 40, maybe, yeah, 40 years, doesn't want to force everybody to be one. Last but not least, there is the multiple listing service. By the way, we're almost done with terminology. In this area, it's called the Northwest Multiple Listing Service. There used to be dozens of them, but the Northwest has been become the biggest and has grown the most. There are still a couple of little pockets in the state of Washington that are not a member of the Multiple Listing Service, the Northwest Multiple Listing Service. And what, the, what is an MLS? Well, it's a database of homes that the real estate community has put together over decades. I remember my mom worked for a real estate firm back in the early 60s, and that was back in the day where the multiple listing service provided all the homes in a book that was about, I swear, to, I swear it was like three inches thick, black and white pictures. They, I think they published it weekly. You had to check the book out. If you lost it, I think they took your firstborn. But that's what real estate was like back then. You took a book. Of course, there were no cell phones. <laughs> there, were no, there was nothing online. <laughs> People didn't have computers. They really earned their keep back then. Over time, of course, it's become more automated and, and, and become part of the Internet. And there was a push in the, in the 90s, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, to allow consumers to directly plug into the database. So there's mixed feelings in the real estate community about that. Overall, I think it's a positive where you can now go to a, a website like Rockwell Realty and do your own home searches, put in your parameters, find home yourself. You are pulling the information directly from the multiple listing service. Any licensed real estate firm's website that you go to and you put in a search, every single one of them is pulling the information from the same multiple listing service. None of them have special listings 
that you can't find other places. In fact, they're not allowed to if they're going to be a member of the multiple listing service. So you might think, well, what about Zillow? Well, Zillow is not a real estate firm. Zillow is not a member of the multiple listing service. They are an advertising company. And so they have their own information online that isn't necessarily part of the multiple listing service. For instance, somebody might post a home there for sale by owner. But the information that they obtain that is in the multiple listing service, they have an agreement with the multiple listing service to post that information online for purposes of marketing and selling. But they are not a member of the multiple listing service. By the way, I'm 99% sure about that. I might be wrong, but that's the last thing that I understood about it. So um, you do have direct access to the multiple listing database through different lending, uh, excuse me, <laughs> mixing lending with real estate through different real estate firm websites. So let's just briefly go over the terminology again. A broker in the real estate business is an individual who's licensed to work through a firm that used to be called agents, correct terminology now is broker. Buyer's broker represents the buyer. Listing broker represents the seller. Buyer's broker works for the selling firm. Listing broker works for the listing firm. A realtor is an association that a, more, that a broker can become a member of. And the multiple listing service is a database that is created for and maintained by real estate firms and brokers. All right. So now you're thinking about, I'm going to talk about home buying first. And if we have time, we'll talk about home selling. So you're thinking about buying a home. So I, by the way, I usually sit down with people for a minimum of an hour. It almost, it usually takes an hour the first time I meet with somebody just to get an idea of how they're going to approach buying a home. Hang on, I'm flipping through my notes. Here we go. Okay. The first thing I like to do when I talk to people is figure out, and this is what you should do, what is your motivation? Some people want to buy a home because of pride of ownership. Others want to buy a home because they think it's a more financially better than renting. Others want to buy homes as rental properties, as an investment. So let's go through each of those things one by one. Everybody has a place that they live, and sometimes it's not, some, sometimes you don't like it. So your options are, if I'm going to rent, do, what can I buy something I'm going to enjoy to live in more? And that's part of that's the pride of ownership. There is something about, I think, just innate about the human spirit where we like to own our own home. Um, that's something for you to decide. I typically don't, I try not to get too involved in the emotional side of things. If you're my client, I tell you, look, I want you to be excited about buying a home. I want to make sure you buy the home that you want to live in. But that's my job is not to sell you on the sizzle. I'm like the cranky old uncle who tries to look for all the things that could go wrong. That might not sound like a very optimistic, upbeat approach, but I feel like that's my responsibility to keep you in check so you make good financial decisions. And that's what I'm going to talk about next. As a homeowner or a home purchaser, it's very, it's very important that you make good financial decisions about the buying of a home. Obviously, obviously. For instance, you wouldn't have wanted to buy a home in June of 2007 and then try to sell it here in, in, in June of 2010. You would have lost tens of thousands of dollars. And I was advising people at that time to be very careful about buying homes. So buying a home for financial reasons, one thing that comes up a lot when people are talking to me about it is the rent versus own concept. I'm not going to go way into it today, but I can show you how rent versus own, a lot of times renting makes more sense 
financially. In a nutshell, though, let's just think about this way. If you were paying zero rent versus having a house payment of $2,000 a month, I bet I can show you where you can invest the $2,000 a month and get a better return on it than owning a home. So if you're paying $2,000 a rent and you owned a home for $2,000 a month, that's when it becomes interesting. Most cases, though, throughout my career, when somebody comes in to buy a house, here's a general picture. They're currently paying $2,000 a month in rent, or $1,500 They're living in a two-bedroom, one-bath place, and what they want is they want a house of three bedrooms, 2,000 square feet. They want to have a, a garage, a yard, and no, there's no way they're going to pay $1,500 $2,000 a month for it. They're going to pay more than they are for where they're renting. And if they want to live in the same quality of, of home or dwelling as they'd buy, they'd be paying higher rent. So th- that's part of the equation is where do I want to live? But if you're thinking about it strictly from a financial term, the simple rule is this. Take the difference between your house payment and your rent and figure out that difference. Say it's $500, it's $1,000. Where else could that money be invested over the time that you plan to live in the house? There are several other components. I'll just r- touch on it briefly. I wrote a spreadsheet to show people how to, 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 um, to an- analyze this. There's the upfront investment, down payment. That has time value. So let's just say you invested $40,000 as a down payment and other closing costs to buy the house. You'd have to calculate how much that money is worth for you over the time you plan to live in and or own the home. Then there's the expenses of owning a home. It goes on and on and on. General rule of thumb to make it very simple. In my opinion, if there isn't a big difference between how much you're paying in rent, how much you're going to be making a house payment, here's the rules of thumb. One, If you own a home for 10 years or more, you're probably going to be okay financially. If you own a home from 5 to 10 years, it's a crapshoot. If you own a home for 1 to 5 years, it's high, high risk. For instance, if you'd bought a house a year ago right now and we're going to sell it in about another year, you'd probably lose money. Housing prices have dropped roughly 15% in that time frame. So those small windows, 1 to 5 years, are very risky because housing prices can fluctuate before we know what's happening, and it's expensive to buy and sell homes, and they're non-liquid, so you can get stuck with them. So if you're buying a home and you're thinking about the financial side of it, is where, is where I try to, that's, that's where I try to focus on for my clients. The 10-year rule is pretty solid. But what if you said, well, gee, I, I don't know if I'm going to be there 10 years. Then I say, okay, plan to own it for 10 years or more. What do you mean by that? Okay, let's just say you buy a house and you hope to live in it for 10 years, but something comes up in your life that's either a wonderful opportunity. You're going to move and get a new job in Atlanta. Well, what if that happens five years from now and the market's dropped? And if you sell the house, you're going to get stuck. If before you bought the house, if you'd thought through how viable would it be for me to rent that house in five years, would I be able to do it? That's a conversation you'd want to have with your real estate broker. There's many, there are many pros and cons to being a landlord and all kinds of pitfalls and opportunities, but that's one of the thought processes that you should have about, about the long-term ownership of a home. That's why I say 10 years or more, and if, not, if you can't live in it, try to have it as a rental. Okay, um, I'm going to come back to a couple more tips for home buying, but right now what I'm going to do is talk about preparation and as you know, of course, buying and selling a house is one of the most significant financial and emotional decisions you'll ever make. And it's one of those things where it's hard to turn back. 
you can't just go a week later, gee, I wish I hadn't done this. You're pretty much stuck. Therefore, it makes sense to very carefully plan how you take action. Now, there are a lot of resources online for this, books, seminars, courses. You can learn about it from family, friends, colleagues. The problem with family, friends, and colleagues is although they all have experiences, most of them aren't professionals in the real estate industry. And so I, I suggest you carefully verify the validity of anybody's advice who isn't in the industry because there's a lot of misconceptions about things. Um, doesn't mean that they don't know what they're talking about, but I'd be careful. I would also ask people what happened to them when they bought their last home that was good and bad. You know, ask them, what did you like about the experience? What did you not like about the experience? What did you like about the person you work with? What you didn't like? Try to collect as much information as you can. Second thing is allocate enough time. It's not like buying a DVD player. You walk out one day, walk, go into, you know, video only, and, hey, this one looks pretty good. 80 bucks later, you're okay. And this is a challenge I find a lot of people have. They start going out looking at homes, and this is the emotional side of it. They fall in love with a house, and they want to buy it. They haven't thought through the process. Here's something that I say all the time. Take your time. Even in a crazy seller's market like it was for a few years, there will always be the right house. Don't rush into buying a house. Take your time. Well, you know, that. speaking of time, I think it's time for us to go into a break. And uh, you're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim. So let me just give you a little bit of information in case you want to call in and t- um, today and talk to me. You can reach me at 425-373-5527. Again, that's 425-373-5527. Or off air, you can reach me directly on my cell at 206 206- Two five zero six five four five again two zero six two five zero six five four five. Feel free to email me with any questions at G McKim. That's G M C K I M at loanzilla.com. That's my mortgage email or my mortgage website. You can visit loanzilla.com, and you can listen to this or prior shows by podcast at eleven fifty. KKNW.com under audio archives. We'll be right back after these messages. Don't go away. Through the generous support of individuals like you, Trees for the Future has planted over 155 million trees and changed thousands of lives in the last 29 years. With your help, Trees for the Future continues to train thousands of impoverished farming families across Africa to plant their way out of poverty using an agroforestry method called the forest garden. Forest gardens consist of nearly 4,000 fast-growing fruit, nut, and timber trees that thrive alongside climate-appropriate crops surrounded by a living green fence. These forest gardens eliminate hunger in two years, increase household income over 400% in four years, and have changed landscapes from dry lands for monocropping to rich soils supporting over 20 varieties of crops and marketable products. Learn more about how you can be part of these efforts by visiting trees.org radio. That's trees.org radio. Alternative Talk 1150, talk radio for the body, mind, and soul. Welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim. I'm your host, Greg. This is the show that covers ownership, 
home ownership from A to Z. We air each Tuesday from 3 to 4 here on 1150 AM KKNW Alternative Talk. During the show, you can call me at 425-373-5527. You will be on the air, but it won't be that scary. Again, 425-373-5527. Or off air, reach me on my cell at 206-250-6545. That's 206-250-6545. Or email me at gmckim, M-C-K-I-M, at lonezilla.com. And my podcast you can find in audio archives at 1150kknw.com. Today we're talking about my tips for buying and selling a home. So far, we've covered some terminology about what a real estate broker, listing firm, that's what, who and what the MLS is. Talked about preparing for a home. And we also talked briefly about the motivation as a buyer for selling a home, rent versus own, and prepare and um, allocating enough time. Take your time to prepare for buying a home, and take your time buying a home. Never feel rushed to do it. Um, so part of the process then in the preparation is who are you going to work with? You should shop for real estate brokers. I highly recommend you to talk to at least three people. Two to three people in person is best. If on phone, maybe through some sort of a web, you know, um, sharing thing. But in person is best. And as you might, if you listen to my other shows, I also say, shop for a lender before you start making offers on homes. Talk to three or four of those. Figure out which ones have the good rates and fees. The ones you want to work with based on what programs they offer. Don't wait till the last minute to do that. You should be shopping for a real estate broker and a mortgage broker lender at the same time and get that all behind you before you even start looking at homes, my, per- my personal opinion. Um, one thing you don't want to do is don't commit to any broker until you're ready to do it. So the buyer's broker who represents you, the buyer, doesn't get paid unless a home sells. And I'll talk about how they get paid in a little bit. However... In the past, sometimes real estate brokers, buyer's brokers, would have the buyer sign a buyer's agency agreement where if you sign that with them and you buy a house through any other party, you will owe that broker you signed their agreement with the entire commission that they were due, even if they don't help you and if they don't get paid. I would never do that, quite frankly. I just think, and there are some people that still do it out there, but I would not do that. If somebody asks you to do that, and there are limited cases where it might make sense, limited cases. I would make sure I understood why my eyes wide open, why I was doing it, how it benefits you to do it, because there are some very limited cases. I won't talk about them right now. If you want to know what those are, call me. Now, the um, thing about real estate brokers, to my knowledge, all real estate firms and brokers, I should say, work on commissions, and I don't know of any that don't. Some advertise that they pay their people on a salary, Redfin advertises that. However, Redfin actually pays their brokers a very minimal salary, not enough to even survive on, and they pay them. They pay them commission. They call. I think they call it something like buyer satisfaction or something. But they they basically earn commission, and that's just how the real estate industry works. So since real estate brokers are salespeople, they are motivated to make a commission. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. However, you need to make sure that they're putting your interest ahead of their own. And that's not an easy thing to do up front because everybody says the same things. I value my customers' 
Customer service is my middle name. By the way, my middle name is Stuart, so I, can, I guess I could say S stands for service. Customer service is my middle name. But how do you know? That's a tough one. We'll talk a little bit about some of the ideas that I have, but referrals, of course, are really a key. I wouldn't go so much with advertising. I would go more with referrals. Advertising is a lot of smoke and mirrors. If somebody provides you good, valuable information and content on their websites and other ways, that's a form of advertising. I would go with more with that than just, you know, we have happy customers. I think most people are, are smart enough to know that. Uh, when you're interviewing brokers, tell them that you will not commit with them until you've completed the interview process with them and some others. Make sure that you don't feel obligated. Sometimes people will go out and look at a home. That's just one of these days you're just out driving around. It's a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon. You say, oh, honey, this is a nice house. And you, you drive in, you look at it, and you've been thinking about buying a house. And you somehow feel obligated that the person in there who you first met with, that maybe you should work with them. Another example is you're thinking about buying a house and you contact a real estate broker to give you access to the home off, of, off their website. So they, they run out there, give you access to the home through their special key, and now you feel obligated to work with them. Don't. You would never feel obligated. You are not obligated unless you sign a contract to work with anyone. Make sure you interview people and that you think about it and interview at least two. I would recommend three and I'm going to talk to you right now about some of those ideas. But first, I'm going to touch on a couple of recommendations I have. I would never allow the listing broker, the broker who represents the seller, to represent both you and the seller on the same transaction. To me, that's an inherent conflict of interest, even though in the state of Washington, it's legal. It's not legal in some states, but it is legal here. But envision this. I'm representing the seller, trying to get them the highest possible price with the least amount of contingencies, and I'm representing you, trying to get you the lowest possible price with the most contingencies to protect you. How can that possibly work? Again, I would never do it unless somebody could spell out to me in very specific, clear terms how it benefited me. Okay, number two, I think I've covered this enough. I would never start looking at homes until I've decided who I want to work with. I also don't think it's right for a consumer to have two or three brokers who are showing them homes because it is a lot of work for a broker to go out and show homes. Don't take two or three of them, run them around, and then pick one at the very end to make an offer on. That's just not right. Keep in mind, they don't get paid until the home closes. Pick somebody in advance and stick with them. Now, you might ask, well, what if I'm not happy with them anymore? General rule of thumb. This is, this is what I tell my clients. Look, this is a team effort. There are going to be times perhaps we don't see eye to eye, and there might be a time when we just cannot continue working together. If that's the case, let's discuss it openly. If you have a problem with the way I'm working, please tell me. I want to know. And then if it can be resolved, we move forward. If it can't, I will happily help you find somebody else. I, n I do not want to work with clients who don't like me. It hasn't happened to me very often. It has happened a couple times because that's the nature of life. There are personality conflicts, there are expectations. It just it happens. But you are not stuck with someone. But do commit. And commit with the team spirit that I just spoke of, which is we're working together. We're going to run into rough spots potentially. Not that often, but if we do, we discuss it. And if we can't find a solution, we move on. But don't jerk people around. Let's say, da, 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 I already said this, but I'll just briefly go over it. Whoever you're interviewing, make it clear that you're interviewing other people too. And then pick one and stick with them. Now, you do get 
what you pay for. There's a lot of people out there discounting real estate commissions, which is fine. I think it's great for consumers. I talked to one of my title escrow companies about a month ago, and I asked them, I said, what percentage of the transactions that you're closing have discounted commissions? They said, easily 50%. So in this day and age, real estate brokers don't like to talk about it. They don't like to talk about real discounting commissions and giving discounts, but it's commonplace. As a consumer, I always recommend that you talk about the commission structure and figure out something that's fair for both parties. For instance, let's say you found the house. The real estate broker didn't even show you a single house. You fell in love with the house, and you want to make an offer immediately. There's less work involved for the real estate broker. So you might want to talk about how you, they should be compensated for that versus somebody who helps you look at 100 homes over a course of two years. So everybody needs to treat the other side of the party in a fair manner, and it's an open discussion. If I were going to evaluate brokers, here would be the five or six, I should say, six bullet points that I would want to discuss with them. One is how do they go about the home search itself? Two, how do we access homes? How do we get inside of them? Three, what type of methodology and systems does the broker have in place to track what we're doing, to plan what we're doing? Four, this, might have, this maybe should be shifted around to number one. What is their experience and expertise? And those are two different things. For instance, a person has a lot of experience, might not have expertise in every area. What would that mean? For instance, a person that's been in real estate all their life, in my case, I also have a background in mortgage, so I have an area of expertise that not every real estate broker does. I'm not trying to promote myself here. It's just a fact. Another broker who might have been a home builder, and I used to build homes too, has another area of expertise. So those are things that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean I'm a better real estate broker than a guy on the street, but I do have areas of expertise, and somebody else clearly can have areas of expertise that I don't have. So the person might be in the real estate business for one year but have so much expertise in the industry that they might be a better real estate broker than a person who's been in 20 years and really doesn't have a lot of expertise. Number five, I really think it's important for you to determine how much financial experience and expertise they have. Not just real estate, but the whole financial side of things. Rent versus own. How do, how do tax breaks work? I'm going to give you a quick example of that. Most people think that if they buy a home, they get to write off the interest. That's true. What most people don't realize, you only get to write off the interest that exceeds the standard deduction you already have when you file your taxes. And that standard deduction, I think, for a married couple in 2018 was roughly, I don't know because I'm not married, but I think it might have been in the 15000 range. So until you hit at least 15000 in interest and real estate taxes, those are the two things you get to write off, you don't have any benefit whatsoever. Let's just pretend you had 20000 in those. Well, that means you have 5000 to write off. And if you write it off, and if you're in like 25% tax bracket or 28 or whatever, let's just say 25, that means that you get on $5,000, what, 1250 bucks. So this is one of the challenges that people have is they hear things, but they don't think them all the way through. How much am I really benefiting by this tax benefit? So your real estate broker should have a great handle on these things and be able to give you examples like I just did. By the way, I would start with open-ended questions whenever I'm asking anybody anything. How do you approach helping me buy a house? And then just shut up. Don't spoon-feed it to them. Because if you spoon-feed it to them, they might go, yeah, I do that, yeah, I do that. But the thing is, if they don't have a plan already, how do you know they ever did it, other than they just agree that it sounds like a good idea? 
But these are the areas you need to touch on. And I would start, I think I would start, I'm going to flip these around. I would start with what's their real estate experience and expertise is number one. What's their financial experience and and expertise number two. How do they go about searching for homes? And it can be a team effort. How do they go about accessing homes? What's their methodology? What's their systems for keeping track of what you're doing? And then what kind of overall advice do they offer? And that's a real mixed bag, of course. And I'll give you one of my personal experiences. Back in the 2005 to 2006 era, people would come into me routinely and say, should I buy a house right now? And the first question I ask them, how long are you going to own the house? If they said anything less than 10 years, I'd say, my advice is no. And they'd say, why not? i say, because I think housing prices are going to drop. Now, I didn't have a crystal ball, but my gut feeling is that it could not be sustained. Too bad I didn't figure out some way to make money on it some big short sale guy or something. I could, have, I could have been retired, but I didn't. It was just my gut feeling. It made no sense to me based on having the experience in the industry for as long as I did. That run-up in prices scared me, and I was right. I had clients who I told in 2006, don't buy a house. I helped them buy a house in 2011. They got the same houses looking at for $30,000 less. So I would ask for examples from your customers, and then if you don't, you know, then say, can you refer me to the person who told, that you, you claim you give that advice to? Happily. Yeah, here they call them up. They'll talk to you. What kind of advice? Well, there's so many different areas to talk about, but just ask them for a couple examples of advice that they've given other clients. So let's go back over it. What is their real estate experience and expertise? What's their financial experience and expertise? How do they help with the home search? How do they home with, what's, what's their methodology and systems? By the way, Methodology and systems, there's a lot of components to that. One of them is the home search itself, but a big part of it is once you get into the transaction, how do you process that part of it, which I will elaborate on in just a few minutes. Okay, Um, blah, 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 blah. One quick top thing about commissions. Most buyers don't understand how the buyer's broker gets paid. And some buyer's brokers say, oh, the seller pays me. Yeah, they do, because when a person lists a home, they agree to pay a certain commission to the listing firm for the sale of that home. The listing firm will typically give 50% of that to the selling firm. So that means the seller's paying it. Yeah, kind of, but think about it. It's built into the price of the home. So in a way, the buyer's paying for it. So that's why it's somewhat negotiable. Keep in mind, again, that the Selling firm gets that commission. The selling broker who works for the form, firm, I should say, gets a portion of that commission, and it varies firm to firm. Ask the broker how they get paid. If you walked into any other professional and were going to ask to utilize their service, you'd want to know how they get paid. You wouldn't just wonder. You'd want to know. You know, we're about to go to a break. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the very specific things that go into making an offer, figuring out what a price to make on a, uh, what price you should pay, and the offer and contract process. So we're going to slip into a break here. You're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim on 1150 AM. This is a show that covers home ownership from soup to nuts. We air each Tuesday from 3 to 4 on 1150 AM KKNW. During the show, you can call in at 425-373-5527. You can reach me anytime on my cell at 206-250-6545. I'll retract that. Not anytime. I probably won't answer at 1 in the morning. 
You can reach me, my, me at email, gmckim at lonezilla.com, and my podcasts are found at 1150kknw.com under audio archives. We'll be right back. See you soon. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Be sure to support the sponsors of your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Hi, welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim. I'm your host, Greg. This is the show where we talk about homeownership, about everything you can think of. We air each day from 3 to 4 on 1150 AM KKNW. During the show, you can call in at 425-373-5527. Reach me off air on my cell at 206-250-6545. So today I am covering my tips for buying and selling a home, but I do not believe I'm going to get to the selling part. It's taking more time than I thought to do the buying part. Let's keep going. Let's recover. Let's just recap what I talked about in the last segment before we went to break. I'm going to go through my notes here and see what it was. Okay, I talked about... Shopping for a real estate broker and a home lender. Do those before you start the process. Don't commit to any broker until you're ready. Interview three or four of them. Two minimum. I would do it in person. Get names and referrals from people. It's preferable to advertising. Nothing wrong with advertising as long as you've done some vetting on that party. Um, Don't allow a broker to represent both you and the seller. Don't work with more than one buyer's broker. Stick with the person, commit to them unless things fall apart, and openly discuss any concerns you have so you can work together, if not part ways on friendly terms. Talk about and negotiate commissions. There's nothing wrong with that. I didn't talk about, oh yeah, i got to cover one more thing. The, the, the six things that I would go through with them is what is their experience and expertise in real estate? What is their experience and expertise in financial matters? How do they go about the home search process? How do they go about the accessing the homes? What's their methodology and systems for tracking the entire process from the beginning all the way through closing? And what kind of advice would they potentially offer you or could they give you any right now? A real estate broker and or a mortgage broker should ask you way more questions than you ask them. They should be asking you questions and not talking very much because they need to understand your situation so they can give you advice. If they're talking and talking about how great they are the whole time and not asking you questions, that's a red flag in my opinion. They should have a whole series of questions listed out. I have about 20, maybe more. I don't remember how many there are. So many I just ask and ask and ask and ask and ask because I need to know what you're trying to do. How can I possibly give you advice or direction if I don't know what you're trying to do? So, and then talk about how the commissions work. We talk about how the, the listing party, the seller is the one that's paying it. It goes to the listing firm. Listing firm keeps half. Selling firm who represents the buyer gets half. And then... Part of that goes, and some of it, all of it goes to the, the, the selling broker. So some of some selling brokers or buyer's brokers work on a split with their firms, and then after a certain point, it goes to 100%. Some, like me, I pay a per-month desk fee, and then I get 100% of the commission and minus a few different fees like business and occupation tax and some insurance things and so forth. Okay. By the way, 
um, if a real estate broker works with you, by law, before they start working, they have to provide you with a document, state of Washington prescribed. It's a little brochure, about uh, 15 pages, I think. It's called the Law of Real Estate Agency, and it discusses some of the terminology we've gone through. And real estate brokers do have a fiduciary responsibility. We are licensed, and we have a responsibility to put the interests of our clients ahead of our own and to be, operate in a transparent, open, ethical, and lawful manner. And that booklet pers- uh, describes the, how, the, how the law, how the, the, the legal requirements for that. And again, you're, you're required before you start working with a broker, they're required to give you a copy of it. One thing I didn't touch on is, should you pick a big, well-known real estate firm or a small one? I don't know. It's up to you. I work for a small one. Why? I like it. <laughs> I, I like to have the flexibility. He lets me run my business the way I want. I don't have to work through a lot of bureaucratic nonsense. Um, Jim, who's been in the business for 40 years, he's been on different state Washington le- um, boards that monitor the ethical behavior. I can go straight to him at any time and talk to him about anything I want. And I've always liked small and local. I'm a small local guy. In fact, might surprise you. I've never bought a. Well, I might not say this, but I've never bought a single thing on Amazon.com. Why? I would rather give the money to a little guy down the street, and I don't care if it costs me slightly more. I just that's my nature, and that's why I work for a small mortgage broker too. It's just four of us because I want to keep the money local. I work with small firms. That's just my personality, so that's why I pick working for a small firm. Pros and cons. Working for a really big firm, you have a little bit more. I don't know, visibility, I would say. As far as structure and support, I couldn't, I couldn't measure it. I get as much structure and support as I need through the Rockwell firm. Maybe somebody else wouldn't. I have enough training. Part of that is because of my experience. But each, each person's individual. Ultimately, however, you are choosing an individual. And I would be leery of anybody who says that the firm they work for, by being a bigger firm, somehow is better for you. I don't know how unless they can give you some real specifics. For instance, it's not the multiple listing prohibits them from discussing and disseminating information in any way, shape, or form in advertising a property before it's listed. They, people do it in the offices, but they're prohibited from doing it. They can be fined, and they can lose their MLS rights by doing it. So there are things that people might do under the table that they're not supposed to do, I don't really know how to compare it because I've never worked for a large firm, but it's a legitimate thing to t- discuss, and you should. You should think about, but should I work with a big firm, Windermere, Redfin, or a small firm through somebody like Rockwell or Executive Realty or the smaller firms? Ultimately, it's the individual you're working with. So I'm going to flip my notes here. Da, 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 da. Okay, here we go. You're starting to look for a home. You've done all your preparation. You've picked the real estate broker. You've picked a lender you're going to work with. You roll up your sleeve and say, let's get started. You, you know why you're buying a home. You know how long you live with it. You know the financial upside downs. This is the first thing I'd tell you to do if you haven't already done it. List your must-haves. I got to have three bedrooms or more. I got to have a two-car garage. I got to have a lawn. And then what I call your unacceptables. I cannot live in a condo. I cannot live next to a busy street. Okay, everything in between there is going to be negotiable. However, when you start looking at homes, look only at the homes that are exactly what you want. This is a tendency that people will do with me. 
They'll go out, we'll look at five homes, and they'll start trying to talk themselves into a home. I say, don't do that. I, I got lots of examples. Like somebody says, I got to have two bathrooms. We look at a home, they go, oh, I like this home. It's cute. It's got a neat backyard. I love location. I say, it's got one bath. I thought you said you had to have two baths. Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know what it is about homes. They got some magnetic thing about them, though. But people go, I had a client once, their number one thing. By the way, this is my first client ever, past mortgage client, first client I ever had, wonderful people, great friends. I showed them 100 homes. <laughs> it was crazy, man. But it was back in 2009. We had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. But the guy, they really, what they wanted more than anything is they wanted a two-story home. So the living space, kitchen, dining, family room, all on the, on the, on the main floor, that looked right out on a big lawn so they could watch their little children run and play in the grass from the, you know, while they're washing the dishes, right? And then upstairs bathroom, bedroom and so forth. We would go to a home, and he'd find a home that had a view that was like on a cliff, you know, the no yard. The kid went out the front deck. They'd fall to their death. Oh, this view is great. And I'd just, like, slap him and say, does it have what you want? No, but I love the view. I just had to shake him a couple of times. That's not what it, but it's weird. People start seeing things, and they, they get, I don't know, kind of, they just lose track. So what I try to do is like, I try to keep them on track because that's not what you really want. I understand it. The mountains are gorgeous. The sun, And then you start making excuses. So you find your must-haves, your unacceptables, and you stick with them until you determine if it's not available. I'll give you an example. you got a client that has to have two bed, one and a half plus baths, and they want to keep the price under a certain point, let's say 330 I said, that's all we're going to look for. We're going to see if we can find them. Turns out we cannot find it in the location they want for under 3.30. So what do we do? We start to move on what they can move on, price. If they couldn't, we could. I mean, if you, if it's on a, you have to have must-haves for price, too. And that starts with down payment and, and your monthly payment. In this particular case, they can afford more. They just prefer not to. So what, what we do is we, we, we determine that the home that they want to have is not available. Then we start stretching the squishy parameters a little bit, like price, unless that was a must-have or an unacceptable. But don't give in right away. A way to start the, 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 the process of searching for a home, I like to do what I call an inventory assessment. The first time you go out and look at homes, you look at as many as you possibly can. You just go just breeze through them, try to get through 15 homes in, in, in a couple, like four hours. It's kind of tough, but you don't stop and look. You don't stop and take, you know, smell the roses. You just go, go, go. You look at homes... Ideally, even homes that are pending. Why? Because it'll give you a good idea of what, when a home sells, what it was really worth because you were inside of it instead of looking at pictures. Again, inventory assessment. You're just trying to get a feel for what's really out there. It's People think, oh, I can do that online. Bull. You'd be surprised how often you walk into a house that you looked at the pictures online. You go, is this the same house? Photographers are really good at making homes look a lot better than they are. As far as the condition, the overall look, the, the wide-angle lenses, you name it, you gotta get, you gotta put your feet on the ground and walk into houses. <laughs> Literally, what does the house smell like? I've, I walked into houses where the odor was so bad we left. There are so many different factors, and that inventory assessment then gives you a good feel. So you go out, maybe two days, a weekend, you go out and you just look at, you try to look at 20, 30 houses. Now it's possible that the very first time you go out, you find the house you love, but the idea is to go out and really get a feel for what's out there before you start the actual buying process because then you have sifted through and thought of things and considered and changed your mind about things you never even considered because you're out there. Highly recommend you do an inventory assessment. Okay, so now, oh, by the way, accessing homes, there's two ways to do that, of course. One is to 
go out with your real estate buyer's broker and they set appointments or if it's vacant, they, they can go in and they have the little super, you know, electronic key or you go out at open houses. I would bring my buyer's broker with me in both cases, the, I mean, the open house too, but you don't always have to. So now you found a house. You want to buy it. So your buyer's broker's job is to help you figure out what you want to pay for it. Part of that is what is it worth? Some of those, sometimes it's hard. Now, a lot of real estate brokers will say that they, they know exactly how to figure out what the house price is and the perfect price for a house. No such thing. Every single house is a variable. Two people can look at the exact same home and have completely different opinions about what it's worth because of their personal preferences and their needs and what they want. But reasonably, you take homes that have recently sold that are as similar as possible, and this is the real estate broker's job. You analyze it. You come up with an idea of what it's worth, and I'm not going to go into that today. That's a long process. To do what I call a comparative market analysis properly takes a minimum of two hours to do it properly. So the other thing you want to do before you make an offer is read all of the offer forms. In fact, I recommend as soon as I start working with my clients, I give them copies of all the forms that we likely will use. Not every form because there's hundreds of them, but the ones we like to use. I say, please read them all before we start looking at houses. Please read them because what if you find the perfect house you want? I want you to read them, take notes about the things you don't understand, any questions you have, and then we're driving around looking at houses and so forth. We're going to talk about them. And even if you don't do that, I'm still going to go over them with you because there's certain highlights. But it's really important because when you make an offer on a home, you don't want to sit there and be wondering about what you're signing because sometimes you're under a time frame. You're under a time crunch. You're competing with someone else. You don't have four hours to read every document. you got to just sign away. It's an uncomfortable thought. I'm signing something I don't really understand, and I hope that this broker knows what they're doing. I hope, I be, Believe me, there are things in those contracts you better understand because once you're in contract, it is a legally binding document. And if you back out without a legal reason without a contractual reason, you lose your earnest money. And the, those are called contingencies, by the way. Typically, you're going to have some in there. In a hot, hot seller's market, people were waiving contingencies routinely. They're waiving their financing, waiving their inspections, waiving appraisals, all kinds of things like that. But um, I don't recommend that as a general rule. By the way, we're running into the end of the show, aren't we, Eric? Okay, so hopefully this was some food for thought. I made it through all, yeah, I actually made it through just a little bit that I missed, but not significant. Thank you very much for listening. This is Home Talk with Greg McKim. Next week, I'll have, uh, hopefully, my friend Jeff Skillingstad on at, from 3 to 4 on, that's the 1st, I believe, March 1st. We air each here, oh, excuse me, let me I'm back up a second. Jeff's been in the building trade. He's been a contractor building commercial and residential homes, high-end homes for the last 40 years, and he's just been super busy lately. He hasn't been to come on. But thanks again very much for listening. We're here every Tuesday from 3 to 4 on 1150 AM KKNW. You can visit um, 1150kknw.com to listen to my audio archives for past shows or reach me off air at 206-250-6545. Again, thank you very much. Call in or send me an email if you have any questions, and I'll see you next week.